to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined, as always, by my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. So regale me with stories, tales from your travels. What wonders did you witness on the north side? Jeez, I uh, I almost fell down the steps in the auxiliary press box at Wrigley about 14 times over the course of three <laughs> days. Those are some of the <laughs> steepest steps I've ever encountered at a, a major league ballpark. But you didn't get lost, at least? No, I did get falling lost. Down the, the I got steps. lost. Okay. I walked in there. I didn't know exactly where the press box was. I, you know, I was looking for an elevator, which was just preposterously stupid in a Mm -hmm. ballpark that old but you know i I got a pretty good lay of the land of like the undercarriage of the stadium Mm -hmm. on day one but it was it shocked like i had never been to i think the the oldest stadium i had ever been to was uh the vet in philly which was built in i think 1970 so this was just a completely alien experience going to a ballpark that old and it was just Mm -hmm. like the way it was wedged into the street was just unlike anything that i had encountered and obviously there were thousands and thousands of cubs fans and thousands of police and horses and it was just crush of humanity it was a really cool experience so just like a lot of people yeah i've only been to wrigley during a very meaningless midsummer day game and had the usual wrigley experience of being blocked by a pole. I didn't obviously have the the playoff atmosphere that you got to enjoy. How how into it or out of it did the crowd become at various times? Was the volume level fairly constant or did it get silent? I think it freaked them out a little bit that they didn't just run away with game three. Yeah. Yeah, because they started off really into it and I'm a pretty like very calm person usually like I don't get all that excited for stuff but there was a moment before game three where like the sun had just gone down the lights had come up everybody was finally in the stadium about 20 minutes before first pitch and I'm watching Kyle Hendricks sort of stretch down the left field line and they start playing tonight tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins Uh and I'm like okay this feels like I'm in a movie right now and the first inning of every game uh, if the Cubs got through it cleanly it was just loud as it could be and then the Indians would inevitably strike back and it would get quiet again and getting that that first hit in the mouth it took the the crowd a while to recover but obviously by the end but you know when they finally won at the end of game five that was about as loud as i've ever heard a baseball stadium for a sustained period of time like the the initial spike of noise wasn't all that loud but it just kept going for about uh, probably about seven or eight minutes after the end of the game so obviously this was a long time in coming did it feel as if the structural integrity of wrigley was in question at any time uh yeah uh fourth inning <laughs> fourth inning of game five when chris bryant homered and then uh, anthony rizzo doubled and i have no idea how that ball stayed in the park by the way it looked like that was out off the bat and i guess it just drifted sort of into the the cutout down the the right field line but it went beyond shaking like it went to full-on wobble like i started yeah. getting seasick in the <laughs> in the upper deck yeah that's i think the standard by which you have to judge playoff excitement if it feels like the stadium is in danger of actually falling down then the appropriate level of uh enthusiasm has been reached yeah certainly certainly here is uh that would be the the ultimate intersection of loud crowd and danger of stadium collapse yeah so we are about to talk to kevin burkhart who has anchored the 
surprisingly viral FS1 postgame show with uh, Pete Rose and Alex Rodriguez and Frank Thomas, and we're going to ask him how the magic happens on that show. But before we get to Kevin, we wanted to talk about just briefly a a couple of actual on-field topics. So where do you want to start? Well, I want to start. First of all, does it feel this might just be the product of my memory of childhood pickoffs are all Andy Pettit snap throws. Uh And then as I transitioned into adulthood, the defining pickoff became Cole Hamill's hesitation move that he was using around, I don't know, like 2009 or so, where he'd sort of like hold up and then throw over and the guy would go to second base and then Ryan Howard would throw the ball into left field. But does it seem like the pickoff caught stealing is more common now to you than it was, I don't know, 15 years ago? I'm not sure. I know that that's the answer I was expecting, by the way. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you would have answered that. Stolen bases are less common than they used to be. And so in a raw sense, probably pickoffs and caught stealings are also less common. But as a percentage of caught stealings, I'm not sure. I'd yeah. check. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if you could play index that. Yeah, that'd be tough. But I bring that up because Francisco Lindor has made it something of a cottage industry in this World Series. He's one for three in stolen base attempts. And beyond that, got picked off by Kyle Hendricks. Uh, in game three. So at what point does he just stop? Like, at what point does Terry (laughs) Francona just nail him to the base and say, like, it didn't work, like, we didn't take advantage of John Lester's inability to throw over? Yeah, I mean, it's it was sort of frustrating for Lester watchers like us because we thought coming into the series that maybe the Indians would be the team to really exploit his inability to throw to first base. And they really haven't. The only runner who has managed to steal a base off Lester without also being thrown out by the Lester Ross battery is Rajai Davis, who stole the most bases in the American League this year. And he did it in kind of the textbook way that we've been wanting everyone to do it against Lester, right? Like he took a a very large lead and he very easily made it to second. And then Lindor, who followed him, didn't take the same lead, even though he had just watched it work with Davis. And even though in game one, when Lindor left early against Lester, he saw that there are no consequences to doing that because Lester just, you know, stepped off and any other pitcher would have made the throw to first and picked him off. But Lester just stood there while Lindor went back to the base. So there is no penalty essentially to taking a large lead and to leaving early. And yet, even so, even though he had that very compelling evidence that that was the case, he just seemingly couldn't bring himself to do it. And you can kind of understand, psychologically speaking, why that would be. Players are conditioned to act a certain way with a left-handed pitcher on the mound. And no matter how many times the advanced scout or your first base coach tells you he's not going to throw over, it's a difficult thing to internalize. And and so I assume that that's responsible for it. And it looked like after he was thrown out by Lester in Game 5... It looked like Davis was giving him sort of a stern talking yeah, to. Yeah, he spent, after spent that. the entire inning break. Like Davis yeah. was right out like with his glove on his way out to center field and spent probably about two minutes talking to, to Lindor. You know, I don't know what he was saying, but he wasn't going to get another opportunity to steal off Lester probably. This is just like I remember getting into it with, with Sam Miller about three or four years ago about people bunning against the shift like – uh-huh. Like, I just hadn't accepted at that point that you couldn't just go the other way at will. 
And yep. stuff like this where there's an obvious opening and for whatever reason, whether it's conditioning or muscle memory, it just it drives me up the wall. Maybe there's a good reason that players don't take advantage of of this obvious deficiency in an opposing defense. It, right. It just it's unfathomable to me. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a good reason, but it's just <laughs> right. it doesn't make it any less frustrating. It might be just sort of like a, an evolutionary adaptation, the way that, you know, we still get anxious about things that we really have no business being anxious about because our ancestors, you know, were scared by a sound and it was yeah. beneficial to be scared by that sound because it might keep you from being eaten by a tiger or something. So for a base runner, it is usually beneficial to treat the pitcher as if he might be able to throw you out and pick you off. And so I guess it can be tough to just put aside those very deeply ingrained instincts. And I will say that I thought, you know, heading into this series, as good as the Cubs are, clearly the best team in baseball, I think you could have pointed to that weakness and another weakness in the Cubs' other co-NLCS MVP, Javier Baez. So we knew that Lester couldn't throw to first, and that seemed like something that teams should be able to exploit. And we knew that Javier Baez will swing at almost anything, and that seems like something teams should easily be able to exploit. But particularly in the NLDS against the Giants, they really hadn't. And there had been a, a couple notable times with Hunter Strickland pitching and with Julio Urias pitching when they had thrown him very hittable 0-2 pitches, even though we have a lot of evidence going to show that he is one of the most free-swinging hitters in the major leagues. And I wrote about that for The Ringer in a piece that's up today. Uh, the Indians, while they really haven't taken advantage of the obvious Lester weakness, they have very much taken advantage of the obvious Baez weakness. And mm -hmm. They've thrown him pitches much farther from the strike zone overall, and particularly with two strikes, and they've really loaded up on breaking balls and off-speed stuff that he can't hit so well with two strikes, and it's a very marked contrast to what the Dodgers and particularly the Giants did, and in a larger sense, just to what everyone did against him during the regular season, and it's worked really well. He's hitting 143 so far, and his biggest hit is a bunt. Yeah, Baez is definitely, I don't know, people are making jokes. I know I've made jokes about the things that, that Baez will swing at. And yeah, he's the book is out on him, it looks like. Yeah. I don't think he's going to get a fastball with a man on base for the rest of the series. Yeah, right. And the book was out. I mean, everyone knew the book. We knew the book without having any high-level playing experience or advanced scouting reports or anything. But I suppose it's still hard to convince yourself you know, you, you face most hitters and against most hitters when they're ahead in the count, you throw pitches that could possibly be strikes. And against Baez, it just seems like the best strategy more often than not is to throw a pitch that has no chance of being a strike. And we saw Cody Allen in that game ending game three at bat. That was kind of the epitome of the Indians approach against Baez so far. He threw one first pitch fastball right over the heart of the plate, and then everything after that had essentially zero chance of being called a strike, even if Baez hadn't swung. And he took a couple for balls, and he swung through a couple, and 
that was the end of the game. But that takes some courage to do, I suppose, as easy as it is for us yeah. to say, well, obviously, that's the optimal approach to Baez. You throw pitches way outside the strike zone. On the other hand, there were men on second and third with a one-run lead, and you know not only does a walk load the bases, but a wild pitch or pass ball ties the game. And so you can understand why all of your instincts are probably telling you throw something at least somewhere in the vicinity of the strike zone. But the Indians have conquered that impulse thus far, and they've really executed that game plan perfectly. Yeah, we should at some point in the offseason see if anybody's like done a game theory model for stuff like this for right. various, uh, you know, what you know, what do you throw Javi Baez, maybe not Javi Baez specifically, but the fastball or the, the curveball in the zone if you're Craig Kimbrell or you know, mid two thousands Brad Lidge or whoever, where you don't have time to to sort of wait and see. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk to Kevin Burkhart from Fox, who has helped pull off the improbable task this postseason of making a pre and post game show that has become almost as much appointment viewing as the actual games themselves. I think. <laughs> Kevin, good to have you on. Yeah, Ben and Michael, thanks. It's been fun. <laughs> it, it is. Um... It's been fun to do them and be a part of it, so hopefully it's it's fun to watch, too. I appreciate it. Yeah, so what is the general philosophy? Obviously, you're on this panel with three Hall of Fame caliber players, and I'm sure that you, to some degree, want to stay out of the way, but you're also the one with the most broadcasting experience, so you kind of have to keep things on track and corral everyone. So what is the strategy that, that you're trying to employ? Well, I mean, you know, I, I've been around baseball a long time, so I, I I love the game and I know the game. So I think that helps me. Number one, you know, I'm not just I'm not just there to host the panel. Um, you know, I, I think I kind of know what's important to talk about, but it, it is all about them. You know, it. it I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I've got whatever you think of them and past controversies, whatever. I've got three of the most iconic players to ever play. That's the bottom line mm-hmm. sitting next to me. So I think you start there with their baseball knowledge and they all are extremely baseball knowledgeable. I mean, I'm sitting there watching these games with them and that's one of the best parts about it. You know, we're in the trailer watching the games together. Like, you know, if you guys having beers watching games, essentially, and we're just talking and we're laughing and we're, you know, we're jabbing and, you know, when big points come up, uh, we just BS about it, watching it. And something will come up and Pete will bring something up. Um, Alex will say something. Frank will say something. So, you know, during the game when we're watching it, I just jot a couple things down on index cards of stuff that they're passionate about or stuff that they talked about. Uh, and I have it in the back of my mind. And then, you know, so you take that. And when we get to the post-game show, our producers have done a really good job in just letting us go. We know where we're starting on the post-game show, and that's it. That's really it. You know, we come, and, and, and again, I give a lot of credit to our producers. It's hard to do. You know, a lot of times those shows, you know, they're produced kind of differently. And our guys have been able to react to us, which um, I think is a credit to them. And so we, we know what topic we're going to start with, like, and, and then we just roll. So I really don't know how long it's going to go. That's up to them. I don't know what's next. Uh, you know, we know we're going to try and get sound on the show because that's important. And we usually react to that pretty well. And for me, at that point, it's just being quarterback. I, I think it's what I'm interested in, too. You know, so if they're starting to talk about something and I kind of get bored, I'm going to switch it up. And, you know, some games are different than others. There's some games where we have a million talking points and some games, some games where we have two or three. So I think it really is just kind of engaging them and, and, and kind of winding them up and letting them go and knowing when to change topic, knowing when to interject, knowing if, you know, maybe two guys are dominating the conversation to get a third guy involved, which doesn't happen too often with this group. So it's just really balancing all that out. But 
you know, the, the other stuff, the chemistry, I don't think you can script, you know, it just happens to be that all three of these guys and, and myself, we all really like each other and it's kind of fun. And I think the cool thing about it is, is that they are, you know, ball uh, uh, chop busting. It, it's like encouraged, you know, and, and all three of these guys can be self-deprecating. So it's, that part is really, you can't know about that until you actually sit down and do shows and see if it happens. So that part's been fun. And I'm sure you've worked with many players in, in various shows in your time as a broadcaster. So have you found that there's a wide range in the way that they prepare for TV work or maybe whether they prepare at all for TV work? I'm sure there are some guys who just sort of show up and say, I played in the big leagues for many years. That's all the preparation I need. And then there are other guys who maybe put as much prep into it as, as anyone else would. So is there a, a pretty big discrepancy between players in their TV preparation? I think everybody does it a little different way, but I think what they find out, and this group is awesome. I mean, you know, I mean, Frank's had, Frank has a pretty good amount of TV experience. He was doing stuff in Chicago when he was done playing. So, right. you know, he's been doing, he's been doing our national stuff for a few years now. So he, he, he knows the drill. Pete remembers everything. I mean, it is, it's unbelievable. His, his, his recall on stuff is incredible. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like 42 years old. And I can't remember stuff like from yesterday, <laughs> and he, you know, and he's got say he, he's, so he is, he just reads and watches and intakes everything. And then Alex from really day one, Alex was awesome in, in preparing and coming in being prepared. But I think what he saw is you could come in being prepared, which we all do, but then like the level of preparation to lead up to the show changes a little bit. Um, and he's adapted to that amazingly. So I, I think what you find is, yeah, are there guys that come in and don't do as much as some other guys? Sure. But I think what, first of all, all these three guys are awesome. And second of all, what you, most guys find is that if you do that, at some point you'll be exposed. You know, I, I get, you know, we work a lot with Dontrell Willis this year. He's been with us for two years on our baseball shows. He's not um, you know, at this stage in the World Series, but he's great. And, you know, Dontrell said it best, you know, from when he got hired, he, he had never done TV before. And so the whole thing was new uh, to him and learning how to exactly how to prepare, you know, and once he got it, he would come in with tons of stuff and ideas and notes. He's like, man, I'll tell you what, he's like, people don't realize like how much homework goes into this. And either you do that and you look good on TV or at some point you're going to be exposed. That's just the bottom line. And I think that even people who maybe came into this with a grudge against A-Rod for other reasons have had to admit that, hey, he's really good on TV. <laughs> and I think it's it's almost become legendary, the stories of how well and how diligently he prepares for this. So can you give us a, a sense from what you've seen of how much time he's putting into this and, and how that manifests itself? Well, it, it's easy to see. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I think first things first, when he first came in, uh, when he first came in last year, you know, he asked if I could come in early to spend time with him to go over a bunch of things and, and logistics and what he should do and how he should go about things, which I was really impressed by, you know, um, I, I certainly didn't have to do that, but I, I was like, wow, okay, this guy's obviously right off the bat dedicated to doing it well. So that was cool. He comes in, he has a journal. He comes in with a journal full of notes. Um, and, you know, we, what we do is we have a production meeting every day. So, you know, all of us kind of come in with a bunch of notes and a bunch of takes and then our producers uh, come in with a bunch of topics that they think might fly. And then we kind of either, you know, kind of go along with that or if we want to change something, we, 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 we kind of hash it out. And so we all come in with our stuff and, and then we talk and, and whatever 
or truthfully, whatever they're most passionate about makes the show. You know, that's usually how it goes. Um, either that or obviously there are certain times where certain things have to be discussed, you know, where it's, you know, like the Schwarber stuff, for example, when he was uh, put on the roster. I mean, that's obviously a no-brainer. You talk about that. But if there's not, if there's room for, you know, during an hour pregame show, we would, it's whatever we do. So if Alex comes in, he's got a, a big journal. He's got notes on everything. He's got some stats. I mean, the guy puts in the time. There's no doubt about it. And it's easy to see, I think. And, and I think the, the one thing for him is that, and I was always told this from, you know, I worked in New York for years and I, you know, a lot of friends who cover the Yankees. And I was always told that the one thing that I would be impressed is after Fox hired Alex, you know, I had some interaction with him, but I didn't know him like I know him now. I mean, now I'm, now he's a friend of mine. But the one thing that they always told me is that he lives for baseball, lives for it. And it's obvious because, you know, even we'll go out to dinner and, and, it's just nonstop baseball talk. It's just, you know, whatever it is, we're just talking about the sport. We're talking about old games. Um, so I, I think when you have that much passion about it, I, I think the work can come pretty easily. So I think for him, that's a beautiful thing. He just, he just loves the game. It's pretty obvious. So you're on uh, a desk with three players with pretty impressive careers. And if this group doesn't have the most home runs ever for any studio panel, then certainly uh, last year with uh, Raul Abanez did. So, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, you know, what's the the greatest home run of of your career? You couldn't add to the thousand plus that uh, that these guys uh, contributed at the major league level. Oh God, I mean, I don't have anything. I mean, unless I go really, really young. I mean, I, there's a reason why I'm doing this behind the mic because I sucked as an athlete. So <laughs> there's, you know, I, I didn't I didn't play college ball or anything like that. You know, just as a kid and. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, that's, that's why I got into broadcasting because I, I loved sports. I always loved it. And I just wasn't good enough to play it at any, you know, uh, any high level. So, you know, I only have my memories as a kid from playing when I was younger. And I will say this, you know, this postseason, with these guys has been maybe the most fun I've ever had doing anything. I mean, and, and there was a moment, you know, when uh, in game six and Wrigley in the NLCS when the clubs, uh, the Cubs clinched, it's one of those moments where you just kind of have to look around and ask if, if life was real because, you know, we're, we're obviously doing all these shows outside Wrigley and, and the atmosphere has been amazing. And, and so the Cubs win. And, you know, I was, was the one that uh, was there for the trophy ceremony. And so after the Cubs clinched, go out in the field, the players are jumping on each other and the place going crazy. And it takes like six, seven minutes to set up the stage, you know. And so they're setting up the stage and I'm just waiting basically for that to happen. And I'm just looking around and just looking at everything, the players and their reactions. And, I, and I'm on the infield and I'm looking around the stadium as they're going crazy and they start singing, go Cubs go. And um, I, I just, that was my personal home run, just being there because I, you know, that's a moment that I'll tell my grandkids about, you know, being on the field when the Cubs finally got back to the world series at Wrigley was pretty, pretty cool. One of the cool things about this show is, you know, this desk this year is that you guys seem to be having that, you know, having fun, which doesn't always happen on a on a baseball broadcast. And there have been obviously some some viral moments involving A-Rod and Pete Rose. You know, obviously you go over the show with your producers and, you know, but how aware are you of, of how the, the public is receiving it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it, um, you know, because we have gotten um, pretty good ratings and because we've we've been fortunate enough to have a, a lot of nice things written about us, which is not always the case, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, it's obviously nice to be working on something that people enjoy. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I know that. So it's just been fun. You know, I, 
I, I think as a let, let's put it this way. I think you know we've had some shows that have been pretty long in the post game. We had uh, I'll go back to the NLCS uh, when the Cubs got to the World Series. We did an hour and forty five minute post game. That's after the trophy ceremony and all the stuff on the field. And we had you know whatever it was three and a half million people watch the show like at the end. And you know I'm sitting there. We got off the air and I had no idea how long we were on the air. I said how, how long were we on? Like an hour and forty five minutes. It felt like ten. So. You know, I, I think if, if I'm hosting it and it didn't feel like work and you're going to get done, I mean, it doesn't mean you're not tired at the end, but it, it's like, wow, that's, that's hopefully a good thing. So, yeah, we, we've been fortunate. I mean, I'm just lucky to be put in this position. You know, the fact that I get to sit next to these three guys, and they're, they're all gems, um, and we just have a good time. You know, we really – you don't have to like each other to work with somebody in this business, you know, but I think it's really lucky when you do and when you all have a good time together and really just enjoy each other's company. So it's it's made it – just kind of seamless this whole postseason. And that sort of reality show aspect to it, and I mean that in the most positive sense, seems like a kind of an indispensable part of it because, you know, nowadays people don't really need to watch the postgame show to get highlights. They can get highlights in a million other places. They can get analysis right, in a right. million other places. They can go online and look up every play and read breakdowns of, of everything that happens. So you need something else to bring them in. And Often the intrigue surrounding this show has been, you know, do these guys like each other? Are they getting on each other's nerves? Sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, whether it's the, the Pete Rose Jeter comment to A-Rod or the, the tool interaction oh. or whatever it is. You know, we, we kind of watch these clips from oh, afar and we wonder, we try to dissect them and say, you know, look at his expression. Is he taking offense to that? And it's hard to say, but are you saying that uh, on the inside, it's just one big happy family and and egos aren't a problem at all. I'm telling you, that's the case. That the, <laughs> I'm laughing because some of the some of the stuff that comes up, I, I mean, obviously it's not scripted, so it's just like the stuff that comes out of these guys' mouths. I mean, the Jeter thing, A Rod was like, I that was like one of the first times I was like, I don't even know where to go from here. <laughs> and when we got when we got done, Alex was laughing so hard. Like when we got when that that was, I think, near the end of the pregame show, one of these one of these shows. I don't remember which one, but I'm pretty sure it was the end of one of the pregames. Um, I think it was in the NLCS. And <laughs> we did that, and we went to break, and, and he was dying laughing. And so much so that we went back and watched the clip to see his expression <laughs> because it was just so good. Um, and that's why, you know, so like when Alex comes back and calls Pete a tool, <laughs> it's just like it's just all in good fun. You know, I've had people tweet me and friends ask me, too. They're like, man it looked like Frank Thomas was going to kill people <laughs> right. tonight. You know, because Fra- people say something, and Frank has this scowl. He'll look at Pete, and he'll and, – but Frank, I'm telling you, he loves it. Like, there are times when, you know, we're getting set to do postgame. He's like, Pete, you better bring it. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready for you. Know, he loves it. He loves Pete busting his chops because he wants to go back at him. You know, it, it, it's very funny. So, no, that's kind of the cool thing is that – I don't know, just, it's really neat to have such iconic players who are just self-deprecating and don't care. You know, they, they don't take themselves too seriously. Like they're, I'll give you another example. There's one time we went to, we were, we were doing something and we got to this point and it was just goofy. And I was laughing so hard. Like I got off, I got off the set and I walked off the set. Like I couldn't even take it. We're just joking around, you know? And so A-Rod just decides to take us to break. Like the producers didn't even say, he just decided to take us to break. <laughs> so, you know, he introduces people. He's like, okay, we'll be back on Fox. And he's like, Frank Thomas, Hall of Famer. He's like, the great Kevin Burkhardt, the hit king. And he's like, me. 
third most strikeouts of all time. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't even make that up. Like, you know, for so I think the cool thing is like, you know, I, I think the really cool thing is, you know, Frank is great. He is one of the nicest dudes you'll ever meet. But I think the public perception because of all the negativity and all the stories about Pete and A-Rod was that they weren't like that. The cool thing about these shows is that you're saying that they are cool. You know, they're deep down. They're just guys. They just guys that one of them happens to have 4,200 hits. The other one happens to have 696 home runs, you know? So I think that's kind of the fun part of this whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was going to ask about that. And does that chemistry, you know, all, all these guys obviously know each other from, from their years in baseball, but you know, does that chemistry on set just happen like that? Or do you have to sort of build into it? Well, I think reps definitely help, you know, um, I think more time definitely helps. I've worked with Frank for like three years now at Fox. So he and I get along great. You know, Pete came in a little after that and did, you know, like bigger events. He came on last, was it two all-star games ago? I don't remember when he started, but you know, so we've had a little time together and Frank and Pete are, are like best buds, seriously. And, and then Alex came on last year and was so dedicated to doing great and he did a great job last year, but I think the beautiful thing is, you know, having done that, he never did anything like that before, but the beauty of it is coming in this year, he had so much more confidence in doing it that he let loose, you know? So while last year he had some great stuff and great analysis and was, I thought just did a great job this year. He's just been, he's confident. So he's, he's loose and his true personality is, is shining through. And so, you know, like the stuff like, like with him calling Pete a tool and him like, you know, me- like, I don't think that part showed last year with him, but now that he is engaged and he's having fun and he's really like, you know, he's, he's, he's getting used to the TV aspect of it. That chemistry is built. So I, I think it comes with two things. It comes with reps, but it also comes with, you know, uh, people clicking and that, you know, chemistry isn't always there. You could work together with somebody for 10 years. It might not be, it might not be, uh, it probably won't be as great as these three. These three guys are three very different personalities and they all have a lot of respect for each other. Uh, and I think that's the key cog. They have respect enough for each other where they can bust each other's chops because the respect level is there at a high level. Do you remember the first time you met Frank Thomas? Because I was watching the, the postgame show with my wife, uh, I think sometime in the last series, and Frank came on the, the screen and she just said, wow, that's the biggest man I've ever seen. So, like, was there any, you know, shock, like, you know, this is your, uh, you know, one of your analysts and, you know, he could pick you up with one hand. Yeah, he, he is. He's a big teddy bear, though. He really is. I never covered Frank. You know, when I worked in baseball, he, he was um, he was a little bit before me and I never covered him. Um, so I didn't know him at all. And, and he's just a giant teddy bear, man. He, he really is. Like, he, he is a huge man. His shoulder to shoulder length is the size of like two chairs. You know, he's just. I can't even imagine, you know, forget about a baseball player. I can't imagine, you know, being a linebacker trying to tackle him when he was a tight end at Auburn. I don't know how you did that. But, you know, he, he is just this gentle giant. I mean, he's, he's a guy that, I mean, you know, we're doing these shows during the summer on MLB Whip Run. He's dancing. He's like, you know, he is just a cool dude. So first time I met him, yeah, it was just kind of one of those, this guy is, is bigger than life type deals. And it's funny along those lines, you know, I'm not really a starstruck person at all. But, you know, it was one of the post-game shows we were doing, and I had a good friend of mine who also works in TV, uh, not at Fox, and just texted me and said, is this real life that you're sitting next to, you know, A-Rod, Pete Rose, and Frank Thomas and doing shows and, like, playing clips and having fun? And it it does kind of hit you. Like, it is pretty nuts, right? You know, just kind of hanging out with three of the most iconic baseball players of all time. So 
you know, I'm really lucky and fortunate that Fox decided to give me the reins and trust me with it. And, you know, hopefully they're happy with what they're getting from it. And do you think that sort of image rehabilitation that we've talked about is is part of the motivation for Pete and A-Rod to, to participate? Or is it just that they're two guys who really like talking about baseball and this is one way to do it? I think the image rehabilitation has been the un- a suspected byproduct of it. Uh-huh. I think with Pete, you know, Fox went after him just because of who he is. He's Pete Rose. And it was, I think they were intrigued by his personality and by having a, a wild card like that, to be honest. And then I was there for his audition when he came in and he was freaking hilarious. And I'm like, Oh my God, this guy is great. And I had a history with Pete a little bit. I, I'm good friends with his son. So so that was kind of a cool introduction for me. I didn't really know Pete well. I met him a couple of times, but I know his son well. And so, you know, we our relationship started off on a good fit. So I think that was that with Pete. And then obviously I think it was the same thing with A-Rod. You know, last year we're going to, you know, they, you know, Fox, no secret. They like big names, you know. So last year they went in and they were trying to get him. And, and he had never even thought about television. He just got approached. And then he's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do it. I think the rehab of their images has just been, uh, organic. I, I don't think, I truly don't think, um, and I would say with 99% certainty, I would know that, that this was not in their plans when they came here. It was not like, hey, let's take a, a TV postseason job so we could build up our image. You know, number one, Pete doesn't care. Um, he could care less. Uh, number two, of course, Alex wants his image to be, to be good. He wants people to like him. But I don't think he ever thought – we actually had a conversation about this off the air. And, and you know, he, he – he, I said to him, I said, you know – you know, I, I said, you ever think you'd be like in Chicago and people will be chanting your name like in, in, a, in a crowd of thousands of people like on a TV says, you ever think about that? He's like, honestly, it's no. He's like, how could I ever, you know, how could I've ever thought about that? You know, people are calling him doing all these nice articles. I mean, when's the last time before he did TV, anybody did a nice article on Alex Rodriguez? Mm-hmm. You think about it, right? <laughs> so, in fact, I think the other thing could be said is, you know what? He could have done this last year and been exposed if he did this and sucked. You know, he could have gotten criticized left and right. So I think to his credit, to Pete's credit, they put themselves out there. Um, and I think just the fact that these positive reviews, the fact that you're seeing these guys are actually pretty down to earth. Um, I think that's just been a byproduct of it all. I'm happy for him, to be honest. I always wonder about the cost benefit analysis of having that outdoor panel at a baseball game. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because it's you get the energy of the live atmosphere, which is great. But on the other hand, you have to scream to drown out everyone and you can't control what people are chanting behind you or what signs they're holding up. So it's kind of you could steer into the skid like uh, college game day does. And, you know, that's become like part of the, you know, the the identity of the show is the signs and the chanting and the the shouting crowd. Well, I think it could go both ways. I think um, I think our set at Wrigley Field is one of the coolest sets I've ever seen. You know, Wrigley's obviously a different beast, but you you feed off that energy. You know, you you feed. Is it is it more challenging to be out there as guys out that are doing the show? A hundred percent. It's hard to hear. It's you have to remain poised. You have to not yell. You have to just kind of do your thing. Um, I think they all did a really good job of that during this whole postseason. But, you know, there's goods and bads to all, right? So, like, when we're on, it depends on where you can get a location. So, like, Cleveland, for example, we're in center field. Pre-game, energy is tremendous. Post-game, energy is tremendous for the first 25 minutes, and then people kind of leave, and then it's like, then, then it's dead, you know? So, it's kind of, it's kind of, there's good and bad both ways there, right? So, you have to, when you, when the energy is there, 
it's great. You feed off it. It gives you pumped. When the energy is not, it could be completely more abundant. You got to, you got to make the energy. You got to manufacture the energy. I think it's cool just in the sense that, Hey, you know, you're kind of telling viewers, this is a big event. We're here. Check out where we are. You're looking at these sights and sounds. The fans are here. This is what the atmosphere is like. You could hear it. You could sense it. You could feel it. So I do think it's a good thing. It's harder for us. It's much more, uh, it's much easier to be in the studio. It's much more comfortable to be in the studio, but I like it. I mean, I think I love being out there, interacting with the fans, being, you know, in the atmosphere, really get a feel for what it's like, you know, um, and we're in the stadium, you know, we're, we're right there. So it's easy to talk about because we're not disconnected. We're there. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely challenges both ways to it. I would agree. And have you tried to cut back on the preparation in order to preserve the spontaneity? Because, I mean, the maybe the most popular clip you've had is just that off-the-cuff conversation of these three great hitters talking about hitting. And you want those kind of quips that come up naturally in conversation. So are you actively suppressing the conversation during the production meeting and saying, you know, save it for air? Uh, well, we never cut back on preparation, especially me, um, because you just never know where you're going to go. It's like, you know, I do NFL, too, and it's like a prep till the moon because you just don't know what you're going to need or use, you know, even if you only use 10 percent of it, which usually is the case. What happens in our meetings is when we're all talking, like we're talking about a topic and the guys start really getting into it. Like our producers are like, all right, shut up enough. Save it for TV. You know, like we get it. it you're past, we'll, we'll save it. You know what I mean? So. We kind of hash things out, and if there's one or two that they're really into it and they get at each other on, they just they, they basically tell them to stop talking and save it for the air. Mm-hmm. That's usually how we do it. <laughs> you, along with seems like every member of the Fox Sports universe, did a, a guest spot on pitch. So I wanted to, you know, we're we're fans of the show here, and you know, we talked to uh, one of the showrunners about it uh, before it premiered. So I just wanted to ask about your uh, your experience doing that. Yeah, it was really fun. You know, the, the show. Um, you know, it was really through CJ Nikowski. CJ had um, kind of a, in, an in with the show. They had called him to do some some uh, work and some consulting on it because uh, give the, the show's producers and directors credit. They, you know, they wanted to make it real. So they wanted to make the, you know, they didn't want to make just write in some stuff that wasn't even accurate. And so, you know, because it's on Fox, they're using a, the Fox baseball people and the Fox talent, you know, Katie Nolan and Colin Cowherd and those people to just to kind of make it uh, more real life. So, I mean, it's, it was cool being on, you know, it's so funny, right? I mean, I'm on TV all the time, but like being on that type of TV, I got yeah, all giddy excited. But yeah, I was like, hey, there's a 10 second clip of me on like a sitcom. It was cool. <laughs> so um, yeah, you know, that part was actually easy only because we just had to act like ourselves. <laughs> it was like, so it wasn't like, hey, you're going to be like a detective in like downtown Miami. It was more like, uh, all right, so this scene is you're doing MLB whip around with CJ and talk about Jenny Baker. I was like, I mean, okay, we could, we could do that. <laughs> uh, so we just, it was actually funny for that one. We did, they scripted us a scene a couple different ways. And so we read it a few different ways. And then we're like, hey, can we just do it like ad lib? And so then CJ and I did like one ad lib. I'm like, okay, cut. We'll take that one. That works. You know, so. But yeah, it was it was kind of neat seeing your face on a different thing like that. Yeah, it's um, you know what, it's just a different challenge. Uh, just kind of a cool thing. I did a couple of voiceovers for the show too, so just a different, totally different deal. 
um, being on that side of things. It really is cool, though. All right. So last one, my favorite clip, I think, from the, the show so far this postseason. This is everybody's and favorite clip. I think so. I don't know. It's maybe yeah. not quite as well known, but it's definitely a cult favorite. So it's in the, the Pete and A-Rod, you're a tool conversation, but it's not them. It's Frank Thomas at the tail end of the clip. And he's silent throughout most of this interaction. And he's just sitting there following along, laughing along a little bit. And then at the very end, he just says, hardware, <laughs> and it comes out of nowhere. And I guess it's a reference to the fact that Pete was talking about A-Rod and hardware stores earlier in the clip, but it's sort of a non sequitur, and everyone's been trying to figure out what was running through his head at that moment. I don't know whether you've talked to him about it at all or, or have any theories. I honestly... I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I didn't talk about it either. Um, you know, honestly, I'm still trying to recover because the last couple of nights we had, you know, we've had, we have this segment um, from the vault on our show that, that mm. usually ends our shows. And uh, it's a, Barty Shereas, who's our, our coordinating producer, it's his mastermind. He just started doing it one day. We had no idea. So he's like, hey, we're going to do this thing called From the Vault today. I'm like, all right. So he's just pulling these ridiculous clips of all of us off the internet and playing them. And he's, he's got a couple of gems in this segment. I mean, he got, he's gotten all of us, you know, he, he, had, he got Frank Thomas from this old beer commercial. It's brutal. I mean, it was so bad, you know, he's, um, you know, obviously you got the Alex, the hardware commercial. He got me like an old car commercial back in New Jersey. It was brutal. <laughs> and, and then he pulls a clip of Pete Rose uh, from the WWF the other night. And <laughs> I almost peed in my pants on the set, you know, and Frank, you know, Frank is Frank. Is, he laughs all the time, and I I seriously thought he was gonna uh, you know sweat through his suit. He was laughing so hard. Like he could. We got done with the show, and he was like ranting all the way. I mean, like to the time we got in the car to go home, and he's like, "Pete, that's not a chicken. That's Pete Rose." <laughs> I mean, we came in the next day to work, and we came in, and we all walked in the door. He's like, "That's not a chicken. It's Pete Rose." <laughs> He could not stop laughing over the clip. So, Frank, man, you just get him going. I, I have no idea what that was. It was probably just, just kind of came out of his mouth. Yeah. There's not a lot of give in that suit. It looks like it took a team of interns to squeeze him into it. So if he laughs too hard, that was could uh, just... That was, that was... <laughs> That was interesting, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we really appreciate it. We are loving the show, and we're sorry that it has to end along with the rest of baseball. But we have at least one more show tonight, maybe uh, another if necessary. And you can keep track of Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Burkhart. Kevin, thanks a lot. Hey, Ben and Michael. Thanks for having me, man. Enjoy the talk, and uh, hopefully we'll see you guys soon, okay? All right, so that will do it for today. We are not actually sure when we'll be back. We might be back with another episode later this week, but one way or another, the podcast is continuing over the offseason. We'll be doing it once a week on Mondays, starting with next Monday, but we're not going away like any sensible baseball podcasters would when baseball ends. We're going to keep talking throughout the long, cold winter. Yeah. Hardware. Hardware. Hardware.